1: Ray Dalio recently said the next five years will be a period of radical disorder. Money printing, rising inflation, a potential banking crisis, and a whole lot of debt threaten to shock the global markets. And many people, including today's guest, believe that something approximating World War III has already begun. But even if that's all true, we can't control it. Whatever hand we're dealt, we have to figure out a way to play it well. So, I bring you Arthur Hayes, the controversial macro investor who's going to provide a masterclass on navigating these difficult times. What are the signs that you see on the horizon that a financial crisis might be headed our way?
0: I absolutely agree there's going to be a major financial crisis, probably as bad or worse than the Great Depression sometime near the end of the decade. Before we get there, we're going to have I think the largest bull market in stocks, real estate, crypto, art, you name it, um, that we've ever seen since world war II. And the reason I believe that is if we back up to like 1945, essentially Europe blew itself up. China was destroyed by a civil war and, and Japan, uh, Russia essentially fought the war for everybody else and massive destruction. So, if you look across the world, the only country that was left was uh, the U.S. And, you know, they had a manufacturing base that was unharmed from the war. And they essentially rebuilt the war and reaped enormous benefits. We're still, you know, people who are American are still living off of uh, those benefits today. But at the end of the day, everybody's sort of believing this thing called, you know, Keynesian economics, which basically is if something gets in trouble, the government should rush in, uh, spend money. If they don't have the money, the central bank should print it. And, you know, everybody collectively in the world, depending, no matter if you're, you know, what sort of ism you believe in, subscribe to this, this theory. And what that means is, you know, we all have collectively agreed that the government is there essentially to attempt to remove the business cycle. Like there should never be, um, bad things that happen to the economy. And if there are, we want the government to come in and essentially destroy the free market. So every time we've had a financial crisis over the last, you know, eight years, what happens? Government rushes in and they essentially destroy some part of the the free market because they want to, you know, save the system. And what does that mean? It's like whack a mole. So every time there's a disturbance, you know, central banks, like, you know, the Federal Reserve in the US, they come in, they print money, they enact a bunch of regulations and they basically say, okay, we don't want this sector to fail. We don't want, you know, the creative destruction that is so called, you know, capitalism. If you actually believe in that, um, we don't want that. And every, you know, five, seven years, there's another sector of the economy that is essentially price fixed. And so we've gotten to this point where, you know, globally central banks have basically destroyed the free pricing mechanism, just about every single sector of the financial economy, except for one, which is the government bond markets, because they're so large so unruly that it's practically impossible to essentially remove the market forces from this part of the market. But the problem is right now we're gonna try. We've you know, <laughs> gone from I don't know 100% debt to GDP globally to about 360% um, as per the World Bank. And we are accelerating the amount of debt that we're adding onto the pile. Why? Because in the rich world, including China, Russia, and Brazil, we've stopped having enough kids. So the population is actually declining. So if you have all this debt and you don't have more humans being born to essentially do stuff to pay it back, um, the only way to ensure the system is solvent is for the governments and the central banks to start printing money. Uh, and now we've gotten to the situation where we have all this debt that needs to be rolled over. We have a population that has been told that, hey, you're good. Anything ever happens, we, the government are going to come in and we're going to make sure that, you know, you have enough food to eat, you got healthcare. Uh, we're going to protect you, blah, blah, blah. Right. And all that's expensive, especially as you have less, less humans who are doing productive stuff. And so we're just going to keep adding on debt because that's the only way the government can stay in business. And now we've got this situation where there's so much debt that, and it's accelerating in an exponential fashion that in order to save the market this time, right? So think in the next three to six months, there's going to be some sort of major market disturbance and probably in the, the U.S. Treasury or other large global bond markets. And the solution is going to be, let's print the most money that we've ever printed to try to save essentially this fiat financial system that we've created um, since World War II, which is going to, in the first instance, create a massive bull market in anything – You know, like stocks, crypto, real estate, things that have a fixed supply. Um, Maybe they're productive. They have some earnings. And then after that, we're going to find out, actually, the government can't save everything. They can't just print as much money as they think to try to save themselves and um, fix the price of the the yield of their bonds. And we're going to get a generational collapse. And hopefully that doesn't coincide with a major global conflict. Usually it does. I hope it doesn't. Uh, cause they don't really want to live through a uh, world war three while I'm alive. Um, but that's sort of the, my overarching, like macro cycle thesis. So, you know, massive top 2026 timeframe and then, um, you know, some sort of, you know, great depression, like situation happening towards the end of the decade. If we want to take a look at the progress of human civilization in the past 150, 200 years, it's all predicated on hydrocarbons. Um, the moment we started extracting oil uh, commercially out of the ground and turning it into thousands of different products that we all use every day that basically powers our modern life, um, development supercharged, right? You know, we went from I don't know how many billions of people in the 1970s to today, it, population more than doubled, right? And that's all because we were able to harness this particular type of potential energy of the earth that's underneath us. Okay, and we, we've piled on all this debt, we've brought forward all this future growth, and we haven't really innovated on another form of energy that makes us that much more productive. You know, maybe if the world started adopting nuclear um, today, immediately, like in small nuclear reactors in our cars, or our apartments powered by nuclear energy, maybe we'd have a chance at growing our way out of this debt. Or... You know if there's some magical alien that comes down and gives us you know some basic research that allows us to tap a new source of energy and like we can commercialize it instantaneously, yes, then we could pay back all this money, or if the population doubled overnight right to sixteen billion people, then okay, great, we've built all this stuff, there's more people that need to use it. okay, we can pay back this debt, but borrowing any of these you know you know I like to say it takes eighteen years to make an eighteen year old so it's pretty much impossible to create humans out of thin air no matter what any politician tells you. And, you know, we're not really, you know, what we seem to be doing is um, in certain countries is saying, you know, hydrocarbons are worthless. We want to use these other forms of energy that are less dense, less productive, and somehow think that we're going to grow our way out of this debt, which is mathematically impossible. There's just no other way other, if the government wants to save itself by it, than printing money. And printing money is not growth. It's just a piece of paper out of thin air. And once the population thinks, hey, there's more and more of these pieces of paper floating around. There's only so many real goods. There's only, you know, there's only so much oil. There's only so much electricity. Well, I guess I should be consuming everything I can now that's not actually generating real growth. If we could just print our money and generate real growth, then Rome would have survived. Zimbabwe would be the richest country in the world. So even Argentina, we've had, you know, the, the Weimar Republic in Germany. Like, if this was the answer, there's plenty of other, you know, societies that have tried this and the, situ- the result is always the same. Massive inflation and then social unrest and collapse of the government. So I think we've proven over thousands of years of human history that printing money is not growth. It's a chimera and at the party it lasts for only so long. And then, you know, it's bad news bears.
1: This is the thing that really freaks me out about what Ray Dalio is talking about is the predictability of this cycle. And what I want to do, you're really good at explaining this. I want to go through the different things that build up to this moment, this this inevitable moment. And then one of the things I want to make sure we talk about later is getting the timing right on this is next to impossible. And so... Uh, that's going to loom in the background, but first I want to, I just want to go through the things. Now you said that you hope that this doesn't all happen in a moment of political instability, but I would like to quote Arthur Hayes to Arthur Hayes here real fast. Uh, this is from, this is the opening line from one of your recent articles. You said, world war three has already begun. Whether the mainstream media and political elite wish to acknowledge it or not. Um, so, let's talk about the political instability. We're going to get to the debt. we're going to get to the banking crisis, inflation, all of that. Um, but set the context for us right now what What's happening right now that unnerves you from a, a political standpoint?
0: So for whatever reason, and I don't know why, Western Europe starting and then America following has it in for russia and and if you read the I think it's McKinder. Um, his um, global home island theory that he wrote, I want to say in the early nineteen, early twentieth, of the nineteenth century, whatever. He was a very famous um, uh, war strategist, and he basically said that the the home island is essentially Eurasia, right? So think of China, Russia, um, Western Europe, right? Whoever controls that portion of the world controls the world. And so, if you think about the naval powers, such as Great Britain and the US, let's talk about Great Britain first, right? What was the British foreign policy all about in the 19th century and early 20th century? Preventing a strong continent, whether it was France or Germany, they didn't care. They just don't want a unified Europe. Now, as Russia industrialized in the late 19th century, they started to worry about, okay, well, what about Russia, right? We can't have an alliance of German, strong Germany after Bismarck. Uh, United Germany and and Russia, because Russia has all these commodities. That would be the worst thing that could ever happen for us, Great Britain and naval power. So what do they do? you know a series of alliances that we you know precipitated World War One, which was let's make sure that Germany and Russia do, are not friends. And essentially, that was a strategy going into World War One. You know, obviously that blew up. What was the strategy in World War II? You know, if you take a look at the, the rise of Hitler and, you know, all the different, you know, Western powers that were okay with Hitler, as long as he was going to turn his army and just fight Russia, right? If, you know, Hitler wrote about this. He said, we want to create the space for the, the German people to essentially eradicate the Slavs in Russia and, and go in there. And the Western Empire was perfectly happy about that because, again, what do they want? They don't want a united home island. They don't want a united Eurasia because that threatens the, the, the hegemon, you know, Great Britain at the time. Obviously that didn't work out so well. Hitler turned his army on, on the other half of Europe. Um, and then everybody started fighting again. Uh, and then we ended that war. And then what we were left with, we were left with the United States versus Russia again. And again, it was all about, let's make sure that, you know, Russia and China aren't aligned. Or, um, Russia and the rest of Russian Europe are in line. That's why, you know, US poured however many billions of dollars through uh, the Marshall Plan into rebuilding Western Europe to make sure it was a bulwark against Russia and the, the virus of, of communism. And, you know, I forgot. I was reading a recent book. It was called The Wars of Asia, uh, 1911 to 1949. And the author made a very good point about, why communism is so hated as a form of government to anything that's not communism, and the reason it is because you know obviously communism has its flaws, but at its the kernel of truth for lots of people is we are going to completely uproot the the social system we're going to replace the classes that are oppressing us. It's not like okay, it's one class of elite who was running things we're going to go over to this other class of elites, which is like socialism, fascism, you know, capitalism. It's just one group of elites versus the other. Communism is let's destroy the whole class of elites and bring the people up to power. Now, obviously, that never actually happens, but in the beginning it does. And so if you're a bourgeois intellectual and, you know, in one of these other systems, you're like, I can't have communism take over. I can't have the actual workers rise up. Replace me as an entire class, and then try to rule. Which is why they hate communism so much. And so you, you, you know the Russian system and what they're trying to export in terms of ideology is so is so hated in and the you know liberal democratic or you know, pseudo fascist West. But in any, in any case, the the U.S. is now you know locked the hedge with Russia to make sure that a divided Eurasia, because a strong Eurasia. Um, will control the world because it controls most of the, re- the resources of the world and most of the population. And that's been the U- U.S. foreign policy since the end of World War II. Fast forward to you know the 90s when the Soviet Union collapses, the U.S. response was not, let's do another Marshall Plan and rebuild Russia. It was, let's um, incentivize a bunch of former gangsters, now called oligarchs to come in and take all the natural resources, impoverish their people, and move their wealth to London and New York, right? And so that was the policy. Now, out of that came, you know, essentially Putin, who was all about, let's build a strong, you know, revisionist, the Russian ideal. Believe it or not, whether you think that's good or bad, but that's his appeal to the Russian people is, hey, you guys suffered through the end of the Soviet Union. The West was not your friend. You know, they stole your shit. I'm here to rebuild the Russians for the Russian people believe that, that's his message to his, his constituents. You know, you can like it or not like it. And so now we're at the situation where, um, Russia invades Ukraine and the West plus pumping in resources to essentially fight them using the blood and the blood and tears of the Ukrainian people. It's not Americans fighting. It's not you know, European, you know, NATO Europeans fighting yet. Right. So it's a, it's a proxy war between Russia and the West, obviously Russia is tacitly supported by by China and the rest of the world is like, well, we don't want a part of this. This, We're trying to be not aligned. We don't want to get involved in this thing. So we have this sort of the setup of uh, all over again of what was happening in in the late 19th century of the West aligning to create a divided Eurasia. And so, you know, we can call it a, a conflict or a skirmish or whatever, but you have I don't know how much, how many billions of dollars have been authorized by U.S. Congress to essentially ship weapons into Ukraine. You have NATO shipping in weapons, um, different countries providing intelligence so that the Ukrainian forces can attempt to stymie the Russian advance. Now, while, yeah, if there's not boots on the ground from, from the West and, and Russia to our knowledge, maybe there are, I don't know. It's, it's basically a war. Um, and so you can, you could make the argument that world war III has already started. Um, it's just not this hot, super kinetic, you know, I'm going to fill my nukes at you kind of thing, um, that we had in the last world war. Now, why do you think this
1: matters? Is this going to play out in energy prices? Is it going to play out as a debt problem? Um, why does this become uh, part of the backdrop of, uh, the, the context that will lead to this coming financial crisis?
0: So at the end of the day, right? Human civilization is a transformation of the potential energy of the sun and the earth into useful economic work, right? So cheap energy prices equals prosperity. Russia is the largest commodity exporter in the world. Um, they have oil, they have natural gas, they've got metals, they've got food, right? Ukraine, the Korean breadbasket was one of the largest wheat exporters in the world. Sunflower seeds, oils, all this stuff is, is in this, in this region. And now we've the West has decided that we're no longer gonna trade with Russia on paper. Now, if you actually look at the details, you know, India, China, some of these other countries are basically just buying the Russian stuff, refining it, selling it back to the Europeans and the Americans at a higher price. Right. So the the the, the result of this policy of let's ostracize Russia is let's just raise prices on our energy inputs globally. And so they're just, the war is causing the inflation. That now the central banks have to fight by raising interest rates, which then bankrupts the banking system because they now have all these bonds, you know, that are underwater. So, the this ideology of we need to fight Russia to, you know, keep the Eurasian island um, fractured is the proximate cause of the inflation that's causing the financial crisis in the West itself. So, it's a dumb policy, but it is the the natural result of what happens when you say, I'm not gonna trade with the largest commodity exporter in the world. I think it's important to break down exactly
1: the cocktail of things that go into making a, um, a- an economy weak. This was something it took me a long time to learn, and for anybody that's been watching the show for a while, they've, they've gotten to go on this journey with me of figuring out how all this works, the debt cycle, exactly what happened with the banking crisis, inflation, all of that. Um, how does how does this begin? Does it all start with the money printing, which leads to the inflation, which causes the banking crisis? What comes first? How does this ball get rolling?
0: So you know the situation wouldn't be so bad if there wasn't all the money printing prior. So at the end of the day, and you know, let's take the U.S. for an example because it's the largest and richest country um, in the world. My you know opinion and thesis is you know back in the you know 1970s. The U.S. government made a tacit promise to the baby boomers and they said, Hey, go out, work, spend your money. Don't save. We got you. We're going to make sure that when you get old, you're going to have healthcare covered by the government. And don't worry. You can be as energy inefficient as you want. Two cars in a garage, driving all, you know, all over the place, not supporting public transportation. We're going to make sure that where there's oil, we're going to get it. So our defense budget is going to be astronomical, and so the baby defense. boomers are great. We're you know we're going to go out there and live our lives and consume the most that any generation ever has in human history. U.S. baby boomers, and what's happened? Health costs continue to rise. Now they didn't rise so much starting until maybe five or ten years ago because these are, they're in the productive years of their life, but now, and I'm sure probably you've had some guests on talking about what they call U.S. sick care, right? The, mo- the amount of money you spend at the end last. 10 years of her life dwarfs all the money you spent receding. And the way the incentives work in the U.S. healthcare system, there's no incentive to actually have preventative care. It's, you know, when you get sick, let's stick you up in the ho- hospital and like just go to town um, on the insurance company, which essentially is a U.S. taxpayer, of Medicare and Social Security. Now, no U.S. politician, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or third party, whatever, can stand up there and say, I'm going to reform the U.S. healthcare system. And guess what, baby boomers who – are the richest cohort and the most politically active, your health benefits are going to decline. You will not get reelected. Um, and so these two programs are sacrosanct. You also will not get reelected saying, hey, we're going to really tackle this, you know, the, this runaway U.S. defense budget. We're not going to go around the world bombing everybody to make sure that you have enough oil so that you can have the newest, you know, badass pickup truck in your uh, in your garage guzzling oil. You also will not re- get reelected. So healthcare and defense, these these line items in the government budget cannot be altered under the current political system and what has been promised to the people over the last 50 years, which basically means that as the population gets older and as the world becomes more multipolar, meaning there's other challengers, namely China, who are saying, hey, this quote unquote rules-based order that's determined by 4% of the population doesn't work for the rest of the 96% of the population that never got a say in what this order was. We want a new order. We want to we have our own commodities. We want to have our own uh, material wealth. We also want to eat a bunch of beef and, and drive a car, right? If you think about the per capita energy uses of the world, for it to match the United States on the global level will require an inordinate m- amount of energy that we just don't have, right? That just means inflation. So what are countries doing is they say, actually, we're going to keep our stu- stuff for ourselves. We'll only export finished products, which makes things more expensive. And so this is all happening before we even got to what's going on today. And as we've had less and less kids, because rich people have less kids. And when women have the choice of contraception, they choose not to have as many children. The the Federal Reserve is like, well, okay, we don't have any growth of humans. We don't have any, you know, we have an escalating cost of keeping the political promises we made to our people. The only option is to print money to make sure that the government can fund itself at, at an affordable level. And every time there's a financial crisis, instead of forming the, the the banking system and allowing some people to fail, they just print money to make sure that the banking system is sound. And the goal of the banking system is to take the people's savings and hand it to the government. That is why the banking system must always be saved from the government perspective, because that's what it's there for. Um, and different countries use their banking systems in different ways to essentially get to the same goal of funding the government at a cheap level. And so that's why whenever the banking system is threatened, the government or the central bank must come in and save it by printing money. So we've gone through this situation, you know, coming up in today where, you know, the U S went from, I don't know, 30% debt to GDP in the 1980s to 130% today, which is, Whoa. you know, a massive amount. And if you read, I uh, forgot the other author professor named Rogoff wrote a piece about um debt in mean, the 2011 book came out i forgot where it went um, sometime in the last 15 20 years and they empirically showed that once a country crosses about 130 debt to gdp there is always a default and the default could be massive currency depreciation it could be massive financial repression or it could be some sort of uh, default in in the government bond market every single time, uh, no exceptions right so they 're at this level already, and now the inflation comes, and the inflation is part and parcel result of there 's less humans doing productive things, the war on climate change and the rebuke of hydrocarbons, and then more players in the world wanting getting assertive over their natural resources saying it shouldn 't just all go to the United States and Western Europe it should come to our people. We should enjoy the same standard of living that we see in the Hollywood movies.
1: The idea that 130% debt to GDP has always historically equal default. I've never heard that before. Um, that's troubling. Uh, we'll come back to that. So the the idea of money printing, this is what I want to anchor people around. So, okay. So you 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 make all these promises to a gigantic generation that generation does not replenish themselves so they're not more people to be productive and take care of them and so your only tool that you have is to start um using debt the only way to manage the debt is to print money to not default on it and now walk us through uh this took me a while to really get my head around the idea that money printing is inflation inflation is simply saying that the 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 amount of money is inflating like a balloon compared to the things that you can buy with it so since there are no additional things to buy then people just start charging more for the things that are on offer because there's more money floating in the system um how accurate is that
0: that's for that, that that's basically it right there's the denominator i.e., the amount of money is just growing infinitely and then the stuff the finite stuff and i think about finance up as energy right we produce and that is in my opinion hydrocarbons because that is the thing that powers our entire Global civilization. I don't care what you believe about the good or evil of oil, but your entire modern life is predicated on oil, whether you believe it, whether you want to believe it or not. And so, it's not as if we've gotten that much more productive in pulling oil out of the ground, or have found, or you know, decided to commercialize nuclear energy, which has been around since I don't know the 1960s, right? For whatever reason, we as a civilization globally decided to ignore this amazing energy source and poo-poo it. Now, if we had decided back in the day to commercialize nuclear and spend the amount of energy and money that we have spent on wind and solar on making nuclear the safest possible energy usage in the smallest possible, um, delivery mechanism, we might not be in this situation, but those are the political choices we made as a, as a civilization. So the energy the amount of energy and how much energy we're producing every year is not growing. Now, in actual fact, like we hit peak oil, you know, a while ago, meaning, The entire growth of the, the oil industry has been predicated on U.S. shale and the the number of new discoveries and new wells being drilled is declining precipitously because shale depletes itself very quickly. But it's not like we're finding a new Saudi Arabia every 10 years. No, you know, these massive oil discoveries. Um, we're just not making them like we were in the, you know, sixties, seventies, eighties. And so more debt. The amount of energy we're producing is is flattish. So that's why we're going to have energy inflation. And when you have energy inflation, you have goods inflation because every single good we use is a derivative of energy.
1: When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you wanna sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in So this is a unique take, at least for me. You're the only person that I've heard anchor everything around energy. I've heard you say, and and this is really important for people if they want to understand the um, point of inflation and why it becomes so problematic, is that uh, what you're really trying to do across time is preserve your purchasing power uh as it relates to the amount of energy so energy is going to determine the cost of a flight energy is going to determine the cost of a car energy is certainly going to determine the cost of gas uh plastics on and on and on like even when it's not uh, plastics can be confused because made of the same substance roughly uh but even just to to do the the creation all of that stuff requires energy which right now obviously the main um uh The main source of that energy is still currently coming from fossil fuels. So understanding that, that you're in this race against that. So now you've got two problems. Problem number one is what you just laid out, that we're flattish. We're not finding new Saudi Arabias uh, every 10 years, which would be lovely and would certainly um, help make that easier. Setting aside any obviously potential um, uh, global warming issue but just from an uh, an energy cost standpoint. So then problem number two becomes that we're inflating the money supply. And so now the cost of that is already going up. Um, so what I want to get into, so if we know that we have this magic mark of 130% debt to GDP is going to equal a default, we're already at 130% debt to GDP, but we have two promises, healthcare and that Uh, to keep the prices where they are from an energy perspective, we're going to have to run around the world, uh, defense um, to make sure that we have access to the flows of oil. Um, We're going to be doing more money printing. Now, walk me through what are some of the things um, that are other than that? Because the crazy thing is, is you listed those two. I wasn't even really thinking about those two as being something that's going to cause us to inflate. I was thinking about, uh, for instance, the BTFP Bank Term Funding Program, so which is basically um, stealth money printing, quantitative easing, just under a different name. Um, it's actually bigger than the COVID stimulus, which was 4.1 trillion. So, walk us through what are some other things that you see on the horizon that are going to lead to more inflation?
0: Um, so. Uh- that's sort of in the past. In the future, we have essentially the rest of the world, and you know, call it the non-aligned countries. They don't subscribe to the West, i.e., NATO or um, the China sphere, right? They just, "Hey, we're a bunch of countries. We've been impoverished ever since pretty much forever. Um, we have the natural resources that are needed to power the green revolution. Uh, we have hydrocarbons. Uh, we have." People who will come into the U.S. and be your nurses, um, will clean your toilets, who will take care of your children, right? This is what we have. Uh, we want to keep these resources for ourselves now. We don't want to choose a side, China or the U.S. We just want to get wealthier ourselves. How do we do that? We trade. What do we trade? We trade you know, higher value goods, right? So an example would be um, Indonesia, a large producer of, of nickel, one of the largest in the world, um, Joko Widodo, the, the president of the country has recently banned the export of raw nickel. He said, you know, guys, you want some nickel, come down to Indonesia, build some sort of manufacturing plan and export the refined product. Um, so I think, if I read the statistic recently, they went from about um, a billion dollars of economy around nickel when they were just exporting um, the raw stuff to something about $20 billion of, of value added when they oh. were said, guess what, guys? you need to build stuff to employ our people to elevate the standing of our country. So this is just one country. The rest of the of the world is like, why the fuck are we letting these guys come down here, own our natural resources, not give us jobs, and then send back the raw stuff, and then we import finished goods, right? That's been the entire um, structure since, since World War II and why stuff is very cheap in the US and Western Europe relative to how expensive things are in, in the rest of the world, and so they're fed up with this, uh, and now sort of they've broken the ideological position, you know, conditioning. You know, maybe some of the leaders who were on the take from all these countries over longer in power, and they're like, "We want to be like the Americans and the Euro- Western Europeans. We've seen the movies. We want to be like them. Why can't we be like them?" Well, we're going to stop giving you guys all of our stuff, essentially, almost for free. And so this is just a movement. Um, resource nationalism. This is what I called, um, Kareel Sokolov from 13D calls it the, the, uh, allegiance of the aggrieved. The aggrieved being anyone who suffered, you know, post-colonial issues from essentially being, um, an economic vassal of, you know, some European nation or, or America. And so they are saying they're, they're gaining their voice again. And at a time when the, you know the appetite of the Western public to go and knock heads against a wall is is declining, and so you have this situation where the the raw stuff that powers the awesome standard of living that's you know, that's in Western Europe and America is going to get more expensive because it doesn't come from those countries themselves and in the case of America, America has all the stuff it ever needs. it's just that the companies in charge would rather ship all the stuff out to you know third world countries and have a cheaper labor base than employ Americans who are expensive, right? Um, Europe's not so lucky. Uh, but I think that is a source of inflation that's only going to grow as the rest of the world says, I want to live in the Hollywood movie too. Hmm.
1: Okay. So the when I think about some of the stealth liabilities that we have, um, the number starts getting pretty scary. When you think about the, um, the buildup as we're having this big party, there's all the stimulus coming in. Um, one, what do you think is going to trigger that? You said in three to six months, you expect some sort of big disturbance. What kind of big disturbance are you looking for? What are things that, you know, the government is going to, um, pony up for? Is it just the things you've listed so far, healthcare, defense, um, and then the banking sector, or are there other things that people aren't thinking about in terms of liabilities? There's no way they'd let go down.
0: Yeah. So at some point I need to write an essay on this, but essentially the, over the last you know, 40 to 50 years, the financial ecosystem, um, has been predicated on a scenario where there's never been a situation where long end, so let's call it 10 or 30 year bond yields in the U S, um rise so they go up but they go up faster than than in short-term yields it's called that's um, never happened for a sustained period of time no over the last 40 50 years it's called a a bear steepener right so if i'm a bank i'm an insurance company i'm a pension company and i'm going to model what i think the future is going to look like i'm going to model the way the future has looked for the past 30 40 years which is every time the there's an issue and uh, yields go up. The government comes in and prints money and squashes the bat down. They squash the volatility down in the markets because they want to save the banking system. They don't want anything, uh, anything to blow up. But now, because we're in the situation, at least in the U.S. treasury market, where the U.S. government is the issuing the most amount of debt ever, right? Federal deficits like seven or 8% of, of GDP. It's, it's as if we're in a war. This is, you know, the largest, longest sustained sort of deficit since World War II war, you know at least not um an overt one uh you have seven point I think 7.75 trillion us dollars worth of debt must be rolled over by 2026 massive amount of debt that's just on the us side so who's going to buy it right the, the traditional buyers were one china japan Right, China and Japan are not buying any more U.S. treasuries. China, because it doesn't want to become more tethered to the dollar from a, a geopolitical safety issue. Um, Japan, because it's also facing an issue in their bond market where their currency is getting trashed because they are also trying to save their bond market. Japan, thankfully to themselves, have saved a lot of money over the last 30, 40 years. And so they're now starting to draw down on that money. They're not buying new treasuries. They're starting to sell treasuries. China's starting to not buy any more treasuries. They're starting to sell treasuries. And you can look at the official data from the U.S. Treasury. And you can see the, the balance of treasuries owned by China and Japan are declining on the, the oil exporter side, right? Talking about OPEC, you know, Russia is a big member of OPEC. Russia is obviously not buying any more treasuries. They just banned them from the, the Western financial system. Um, Saudi Arabia is not uh, increasing its treasury position. It's also decreasing. So the oil exporting nations. Who previously would earn dollars internationally and park those dollars in the US banking system and buy treasuries, they're no longer buying treasuries. The US banking system. The US banking system is functionally insolvent because the regulators made the rules in such a way that it was profitable from an accounting perspective, not an economic perspective, um, to essentially take in deposits and buy low yielding treasuries. And they could do it with almost infinite leverage and a few basis points difference. And the, and the change in the price, and everybody make a lot of money, and everybody gets a big bonus, right? So the banks collectively bought all these treasuries in 2021, and obviously the prices went down a lot since then, and that's why we have the regional banking crisis. So, at a structural level, the U.S. banking system cannot buy more debt because it can't afford to, because it's functionally insolvent. And so, and, and, you know, that leaves the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve has committed to doing quantitative tightening, which means it's letting the treasuries roll off of its balance sheet. It's not accumulating more treasuries. So the treasury has to issue all this new debt. It has to roll over all this new debt. But the major buyers of this stuff, for all their own, you know, disparate reasons, cannot purchase it. And so what we're seeing in the markets is relationships that held clad are breaking down. If you take a look at the 10-year the US Treasury versus gold, you would think as yields are rising in the US Treasury market, that gold would be getting clobbered. That's how it's worked um, uh, in, in modern financial history. Because if the interest rate is high, money says, I want to own that. I want to own the 4.5% Treasury versus owning gold, which pays me nothing. But nowadays, gold's holding firm. It's not like rising crazy crazy fashion, but it's not getting clobbered either as U.S. Treasury uh, 10-year yields are at, you know, 4, 434 basis points last time I checked. Um,
1: so hold on, like- that that makes a prediction, uh, the, at least as my mind grasps it, that people think that the bank is going to default because, uh, sorry, the government's going to default because if you're getting whatever risk-free money of, it's right now it's like something like 5%. Uh, if you can have risk-free money at five percent, and people are not fleeing gold to get into that risk-free money at five percent, that says, to my limited mind, that the market no longer believes that it's risk-free. Is that an accurate uh, as, uh assumption? Well, no, the, about the market. What's going the, on? The
0: U.S. is risk-free in a U.S. dollar perspective, in a nominal basis. And why would people stay in gold? Because they say I'm not getting paid enough, right? Um, now I. Th- I use a term of real yield. And if you ask an economist who get a different answer depending on who you ask, my definition of the real yield is I take the government bond yield and I subtract nominal GDP. Right. So if I'm lending money to the government from a philosophical standpoint, I should receive at least the yield of the growth of the economy. So if the economy is growing at 10%, I should get paid 10% too, because I'm contributing to that. Right. I'm lending to the government. The government's doing its thing. You know. And the economy is growing. I should get paid the same amount. Now, from the government's perspective, we're like, hold on. I can make a profit if I can somehow engineer the economy to grow at 10%, but I only pay you 5%. That's a negative yield. I, I the government, am, am making a profit. Or Conversely, if the yield is 10% and the economy is growing at 5%, then me, the bondholder, is earning a profit. But right now, the economy in the US, if you take a look at the latest um, Atlanta- Fed GDP nowcast, and they have a real time guesstimate on where they GDP is running. Nominal GDP this quarter is running around nine percent. The ten year yield is about four point three four percent. So, I, as a bond holder, I'm getting short changed. Now, people are starting to realize that, Like, hold on, the U.S. economy on paper is growing like gangbusters. I should be getting paid more money. If I'm not going to get paid more money, then I'm not going to own these bonds. Because I can own something else that's going to give me a better return, whether that's stocks, gold, crypto, whatever, right? Is gold, AI tech just, to,
1: just to take a, a non-controversial one, would gold ever outperform that number?
0: In terms of the, the yield?
1: Yeah, because the way you're explaining it, it sounds like people are cutting their nose off to spite their face. Like If you're going to get 5% risk-free with a treasury and you're going to get next to nothing with gold... Then why on earth would you, even if you could get 10%, even if you have a moral, just you have moral outrage at the government for keeping half of that yield for themselves, which I admit, if you loan the money to the government, it's pretty fishy that they would keep that for themselves. But if you're getting a better yield than you would get from gold, what on earth are people doing um, just saying, "Ah, I'd rather get nothing because I'm angry? I don't understand.
0: So, you know, most people who own bonds, the bond is a price, right? So as the yields rise, the bond price goes down. Um, And so as yields go from 5% to, let's say, 10%, so the fact this keeps raising rates, right? As a holder of the bond, you've lost money. Because the yields are they're rising, the bond price goes down, right? So as yields rise, I lose money because I've locked in the lower rate and it's going higher, the bond price goes down Um, versus gold, which you know, could go up, right? Or just could stay flat at the end of the day and I'm I'm fine. So if you take a look at returns of 10 year bonds starting in two end of 2021 when the Fed started raising rates, you've gotten absolutely killed. It's been the worst bond bear markets in hundreds of years. Right. So owning bonds has been a terrible, terrible investment over the last two years because inflation is going up and the bond market saying, actually, I demand more yield and the just keeps going higher and higher and higher and higher to attract more and more buyers. Now, if the U.S. government is perfectly willing to put the 10-year treasury yield up at 10%, they'd have a flood of money into the market. That's awesome. I'm getting paid the same growth as the U.S. economy, but right now I'm not because the government can't afford it. Right now the treasury is already spending something like 34% of um, the budget's like interest payments. On an annual basis. 34%? Yes, so it's a like one trillion dollars annualized right now. Is the interest expense as of uh, second quarter? The last time the Treasury published a t- statistic, so they're issuing more debt and they're paying more money on the debt. And that number is just going like that um, in terms of the interest expense handed out to people who own own bonds, right? But on the long end, and this is how bonds work: the the longer the maturity, the more risk, more sensitive you are to interest rates, especially if the bond the yield starts at a low level going from 1% to 5% on a 10-year treasury absolutely destroys you as a long bond holder, which is why a lot of these bond funds have done terribly well, t- have done terribly over the last few years because of how bond math works. And it's it's a non-linear change when you raise interest rates and how the bond price performs. Gold is pretty much held constant um, over that time. They haven't made money, they haven't lost money, but if you were holding a, a long bond at 1%, 2%, and now it's at 5 You've got crushed. And that's exactly what happened with the banking system, you know, SVB, first Republic, uh, Silvergate signature, you know, um, this year, they've gotten crushed on long, long bond trading. Okay, I want to walk
1: people through that. Uh, so, I, uh, when it comes to math, I have a very simple mind. You're going to correct me where I go wrong, but I think people at home, some of them are going to benefit from what I have struggled over the last year or so to put together in my mind. Again, you're going to, when I go wrong, you need to jump in and, and let people know. Uh, but here is how I understand bonds. If you hold a bond to maturity, you're not going to lose your principal. So what you're losing is potential earnings. So you would not be able to sell that bond. So uh, for those keeping score, it goes like this. You buy a bond, that bond has a, a interest payment and that interest payment, let's say is 2%. And if you buy that bond for 10 years to get the 2% and a year later, a new bond comes out for 10 years that pays 5%, Now, if you try to sell that bond in the secondary market, people are going to go, why on earth would I buy that when I can, for the same price, I can get a better yield. And so you have sort of lost money in that you can't sell it before the mature date. You are now going to have to hold it all 10 years in order to get all of your money back. But if you hold it for all 10 years, you will get your 2% and you will get your uh, money back, assuming that this is a government bond and they don't default. So. That I, I want to make sure people understand the difference between you're losing potential revenue because if you didn't have your money tied up in a 10-year bond and you could now put it into that other 10-year bond that's earning 5%, obviously, you'd be better off. But you don't lose your money unless you need to sell. Now, that brings us – and you will notice he has not interrupted me, so I'll assume that's well, all I'll correct say, so I'll, far.
0: I'll give it even more – uh, even closer to home example, people who have a mortgage on a house, right? I think this is even more understandable. Like everybody rushed and bought houses in 2020, 2021 and the old, and a mortgage, three year mortgage rates in the US are around three, three and a half percent. And now there's another job and another location. Or maybe you're living in a high tax state and want to move to a low tax state, right? And you need to buy another house. Same value of the house. The price of the house is the same, but you need to get a new mortgage. Now the mortgage rates are seven, eight percent. And you're like, holy shit, I can't afford this house anymore because my this mortgage, this this bond that I have at three percent is more valuable than the bond of the mortgage at seven, eight percent. Therefore, I can't find another loan that I can service with my income because of the change in interest rates. And so that's I think an even more hits-home example of the majority of the public who own a house or an apartment or whatever. It's oh, I had a mortgage at three percent. I can't, aff- in the same value of the house, I cannot afford that house in another location because I'd have to get a new mortgage at seven, eight percent. That is bond math. That's the exact, and you can put the same thing for you know treasuries. Mortgage is a bit more complicated, but at a high level, that that's that's exactly the phenomenon you're describing.
1: Mm. Now the mortgage though would be completely inverse, right? So on a mortgage, I want my rate going down. On a bond, I want my exactly. rate going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Um, okay. So now let's take that. So we understand that I buy a, a long-term bond. And back in 21, when all the banks gobbled up all this US debt, They had to go long to get a return, which a bank is incentivized to do. So they're going to take the deposits that they're getting. Everybody's getting stimulus checks. Everybody's depositing into a bank. The bank's like, amazing. I'm going to invest. First of all, the Fed is like, we're not going to raise rates. Oh, my God. It's going to be like this basically forever. And so they buy all these long-term bonds on the word of the Fed that they're not going to be raising rates. So they think, okay, well, if rates aren't going to go up, then I don't have to worry about the value of this going down. This will get me a higher yield by me taking a longer term, which uh, we need to get back to because you were talking about how it's very atypical for short-term to raise faster than long-term. So that's a sign that something weird is happening. But in 21, that hadn't happened yet. So a long-term was the way to get the extra interest payment. So the banks gobble up these long-term uh, treasuries. So they're
0: buying debt. Well, of- I'll, I'll add one little caveat here is you can actually hedge this stuff. So it's not as if there isn't instruments to say like, okay, I bought a bond at 2 3%. I'm worried about the future where the Fed raises rates. Let me go out in the market and hedge that. The banking system could have easily hedged a lot of this risk, and some banks did, um, a lot of banks didn't, but that comes at a cost. So I can either have a higher bonus or a lower bonus. The Fed mm-hmm. says, don't, don't worry, I got this, You know, tr- inflation is transitory, never raising rates, You know, we, we're never going above 2% inflation, blah, blah, blah. Why would I go out and hedge the long end rates? Why would I go out and hedge rates going up and reduce my bonus? So I'll stop there.
1: Dude, that's horrifying. If that, and, and look, I'm sure it did. I don't want to play naive, uh, but that's horrible. Okay, so if that's right, then to get their bigger bonus, they buy these longer-term uh, treasuries. They lock themselves in. Now, the Fed does raise the interest rate. Now, that bond, they can't sell it early, and therefore, they're losing that potential income Wouldn't necessarily be a problem except for the fact that people begin to realize, hold on a second, now the risk-free rate of a U.S. Treasury that I can get myself is 5%, so I don't want to leave it in the bank where they're paying me next to nothing. I want to go get my 5% risk-free with the government, so hey, SVB, I will take my money, thank you very much, and now SVB has to cover that so that they can give you the money back, and now they're forced to sell these long bonds at a loss and all hell breaks loose.
0: Yep. That's exactly it. The U S government bankrupted the banking system essentially. That, that is brutal when
1: said that plainly. Okay. So now my question is they create the, uh, (laughs) I just had it. The BTFP bank term funding program, which basically says, Hey everybody, don't worry. Your deposits are safe. Uh, but the problem is that puts them on the hook for up to $4.4 trillion that they would have to print their way out of. So do we still have a banking crisis or do we only have a looming potential inflation
0: crisis? There is a political choice there, there, you know, either as people say, again, I don't, I haven't looked at the deposit rates yet, but if you are a non too big to shale bank, there's eight of them. Um, it's very hard to attract deposits. And it's very hard for you to raise your deposit rate because, again, you have this this portfolio of stuff and your your deposits are not guaranteed. So if I'm a JP Morgan, a Citibank, a Wells Fargo, I forgot the other ones. The big banks, they have an unlimited deposit guarantee. Now they have to pay a bunch of other charges for that. But if I'm a depositor in those banks, I know I'm, there is no question. The politicians have told me I will get 100% of my money back no limit. If I'm not in one of those banks, I have to think to myself, okay, is this bank going to get saved? Is this going to be the Lehman Brothers, or is this going to be the Goldman Sachs? Which one's going to Which one of them is going to be right? They let Lehman fail. They didn't let Goldman fail, right? And so, it's the thought. And so, we're like, well, why even take the risk? Get me the fuck out of here. I'm giving my money to Jamie Dimon, right? And so, that's the issue. People are fleeing because number one, the political choice has been. We are not going to extend a blanket guarantee to all these other smaller banks because of moral hazard and all these different things. We're only going to give it to these banks over here. So then the rational response of the public is, well, I don't want to be in that bank. I don't want to have to take the risk that they decide that this is the bank they're going to believe in capitalism on. I'm going to go on over here. Let me go to, to socialism. I get my money back. Um, and so I think that's driving part of it. And then the other thing is the rates are still going up, right? Five and a half percent. You know, maybe the Fed raises a couple more times. Maybe it'll be six percent. I can literally two clicks go online, go to my money market account, deposit money with the government essentially, and get more money than my bank can mathematically pay me. So yes, there was a banking crisis. We, it was smoothed out a bit with the bank term funding program, but it's not as if people have stopped noticing that in less than five minutes they can, you know, go from zero percent to six percent interest income that didn't stop. So the banking crisis is still there. The acute political choice that the regulators and the government is going to have to make is still there. It's still looming. Who is going to pay for these losses on the bond portfolios of all these banks? I don't know what they're going to decide, but I think they're going to decide to print the money and make sure that the electric gets their deposit back in nominal dollar terms. So that's just my my opinion. So the bank term funding program does not cover regional banks? I thought it did. No, no, it covers, it covers banks that have um, eligible securities. So that essentially means U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed mortgage back securities. Now, the Got big it. thing that a lot of people are now focusing on is the commercial real estate, right? That's not included. So it's not as if I lent money to some real estate developer in some market who's going to build office buildings. I can't take that loan right now and give it to the Fed and get back Um, 100% of my money back in in dollars, right? I can take a treasury, I can take a mortgage-backed security, I can swap that for dollars. I can't swap commercial real estate, which is a problem because small regional banks were the engine of commercial real estate lending boom over the last, you know, decades, whatever you want to call it. So now as we're changing the way we work and, you know, two to three days work from home for a lot of folks, these office buildings are becoming kind of irrelevant and the market has frozen. So now it's a question of okay, what when deals get done, how big is the price decline going to be, and then are banks going to have to write down this this section of their balance sheet? And oh shit, they're insolvent again, or at least we know they're insolvent again. Or what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to expand the BTFP to include commercial real estate loans because this was you know this is the thing that's going down in price, or are they going to expand it to auto loans, or are they going to expand it to You know, personal loans, like all these things that the banks have been lending out where the ability to pay or the asset value is declining that aren't US Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, is the BTFP going to be expanded to cover those? Because if those go down in price, the banking system still insolvent, right? And so, yes, they've solved one portion of the market, the one they really, really care about, which is mortgage-backed securities. They want Americans to own a house and US Treasuries. They want Americans to invest in the government. Now it's all this other stuff. They would rather not have to bail it out. But again, the banking system is choking on all this stuff and they're going to have to make the political choice at some point. Either they're going to let the non-tubic to fill banks actually fail and a lot of, you know, Americans with small deposits not get their money back or they're going to come in and save the day and bail everybody out and print more dollars. As someone who is
1: constantly learning new information and skills, I've found some tricks to most effectively and efficiently retain and remember that information. And one of the keys to this process is actively engaging with the content. You have to use it. And when it comes to learning a new language, the most efficient app out there is Babbel. With Babbel's revolutionary conversation-based approach, learning a new language is both efficient and effective. With quick 10-minute lessons rooted in real-life situations, you can start actually speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Take it from somebody who has struggled mightily to learn Greek, to impress my beloved wife and my in-laws, I really wish Babbel had existed back then. It would have helped so much. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Babbel today and take advantage of the special deal for Impact Theory listeners right now Get 55% off your Babel subscription at babbel.com slash impact theory. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash impact theory, and that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com, again, slash impact theory. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay. I think this is the part uh, in our program where we point out exactly what inflation is. When it was first described to me as an invisible tax, I was like, it didn't make sense to me. And now understanding it better, I realize that what you're doing is you're saying, okay, um, we're going to make everybody's money worth a little bit less. So by making more of it, then the value of any $1 just reduces a little bit. And so it becomes a way to spread the taxation across everybody. Um, So the real question the government is asking is, okay, this bank, whatever, they did something that isn't, uh, well, so we already know that mortgage-backed securities uh, and treasuries, those are going to be one for one. But if they have something other than that, they're asking the question, do we want everybody to have to cover this thing that didn't end up working out, this investment that didn't work out, or are we just going to let them roll over and die? Um, As you look at that, and when you think about this three to six month big disturbance, is that the thing that you think happens that we get some something triggers a run on these small banks, could be commercial real estate starts, uh, something kicks off and it starts going down, or are there other things on your bingo card other than the regional bank failures? I
0: mean, usually it's, the problems are known. It's a question of whether or not we're focusing on, and we being the market, right? So the market knows that commercial real estate's a problem, but we haven't really seen a big price markdown because no one wants to trade. The, the sellers don't want to realize a loss and then have to mark the rest of their portfolio down and thus be insolvent. And the buyers don't want to buy at this price because they know it's too high. So nobody's trading, right? So it's that calm situation where, okay, well, the price is still where it was, you know, 12 months ago, but there's no transactions, right? So once there's a few transactions when people have to sell for whatever reason, we don't know what that, that is going to be, then we're going to go, then it's the fiduciary responsibility is, okay, well, there are these transactions in the market. and I, I now need to mark down my portfolio, report to my regulators, oh shit, my capital buffer is declined, therefore I'm insolvent. And what usually happens is You know, because of the politics, they'll let somebody fail. Someone's gonna, there's gonna be at least one failure. And then the market's gonna fucking throw a fit. Um, shit's gonna be trading all sorts of fucked up ways. And then, you know, on one weekend, they're like, okay, we can't let the next one fail, right? They let, uh, uh, Silvergate fail in, in March of, of this year, but they didn't let SVB. And by fail, I mean, Silvergate went bankrupt and the, the, the depositors are not guaranteed to get their money back by the the uh, federal deposit insurance company, the FDIC. Whereas with SCB and Signature and, uh, and First Republic, they were bailed out. They being the depositors were bailed out. Now, obviously the bank management was replaced and equity holders lost money, but the the depositors were, were bailed out. So usually one person fails. There was a even there was a bear before there was Goldman, Morgan Stanley, everybody else sitting here. So they'll probably let somebody fail first because the politics demand it once the fear of um looming collapse is instilled in in the regulators they're then going to say we have to print the money because the system is going to fail." what that's going to be i don't know i just see that for whatever reason financial crises happen in the fall and in you know the winter in the northern hemisphere perspective and so we haven't solved any of these problems they're only getting worse um, they're getting exponentially worse. And the, the countries that would usually bail off the American financial system by buying assets for their own reasons can't do so. And so as we progress further into this season where traditionally crisis happens, there's going to be something. I don't know what it's going to be. That's just my, my, my base case. And I want to prepare myself and make sure that I'm able to make money in, uh, in a situation where, um, she gets all fucked up.
1: Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that there's a preponderance of problems in the fall and winter. Is that the obvious guess for somebody that's never heard that before would be it has something to do with energy prices as people have to crank up their usually. You know, so heating. in the
0: past, it was ag- agricultural um, issues, right? So, um, the farmers, uh, the credit tightens in certain parts of the year, depending on when um, the farmers need credit to, you know, buy more equipment to do the winter planting, right? They receive a bunch of money. Now they need to, to draw down on credit. And so that's why you get the spikes in, in, uh, in credit as we move through the agricultural cycle. And that's part of the reason why you have, um, different Federal Reserve banks in different districts is to try to smooth out that, um, the demand and supply of credit between the banks in the East and the, the agricultural regions and sort of the, the center of, uh, center of the country. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, every other country is kind of the same, right? Farmers are always in debt and they're always borrowing money and then receiving lots of money depending on, on how the harvest goes. And I think that's part of the reason why we usually experience crises in harvest season and then winter planting.
1: Now, you said the problem is usually known, but it's a question of whether the market's paying attention to it or not. What are some of the problems that you're already aware of, whether the market's focus on them or not, that could be those um, early dominoes that fall?
0: So we already know that the, in the U.S. banking system is insolvent from a U.S. perspective. Um, we already know that the, the major buyers of U.S. treasury debt are not buying and the treasury needs to issue a lot of it. That's known. Um, we already know that commercial real estate in the U.S. is a problem. It's just that nobody's trading right now because of what I just described, you know, globally. We already know that, um, China has this massive, Real estate issue and is deleveraging, which means that China cannot contribute to global growth in the ways that it used to, meaning, um, doing massive government stimulus and essentially buying stuff from the rest of the world to build up their country, right? China's been, power- been the economic powerhouse of global growth, which leads into the US and European economies, you know, since the early nineties. They, they have lost their capacity to stimulate in the ways that they're used to. Um, Japan has, an, has a problem. Either they're going to save their government bond market or they're going to save their currency. Japan holds is one of the richest countries from an asset perspective on their balance sheet. Are they going to sell down their treasuries, their, you know, fancy U.S. real estate, um, their equity positions to essentially help fund the, um, uh, the ability for their central bank to manage, uh, the depreciation of their currency? So these are all known things. There's nothing hiding. Which one is the one that causes the spark for everyone to start focusing on and freaking out? I don't know. So then, as we
1: um, start putting all of these pieces together, what becomes the the next step is there? Um, the crisis kicks off. The money printing continues, and I assume when you think about money printing, uh, an analogy to use would be a rubber band that's being pulled farther and farther back. And every failure releases tension because we, those people, they lose and we don't have to make them whole and there's no more printing and there's, it's not inflationary. And every time we print more, there's more tension, more tension, more tension. Um, is that how you look at that? You're waiting for the domino, the housing mark or sorry, the regional banking goes, uh, the, the fed decides we're going to bail them out. We pour a ton of money into the system uh, and, you're just waiting for that moment where there's too much tension. Like is, do you see a, um, when you say a big disturbance happens, do we just load up more tension on the rubber band, but we're still, who knows, 10, 20 years away from a real crisis, or do you think it has to break? And that's why we go into the, a great depression style, um,
0: problem. So I think we've moved the crisis upstairs to the, the, the sovereign debt markets. And so this crisis will be the buyers refuse to buy long end bonds of a particular government because we're all, every government's in the same sort of position, different things can set it off. But again, global g- debt to GDP is 260%. Why on earth would I, as an investor, own a long end bond when I know that there's nobody getting born and... There's not going to be an energy productivity miracle. There's just no way for me to get paid back in a real dollar, a real yen, a real RMB, uh, at a rate that's affordable for the government for me to make money I'm over time. So then why own these bonds? I'm perfectly happy to sit in like overnight, you know, Fed deposits or um, short end bonds of a particular company because I know I can just sell those pretty quickly and not suffer any sort of capital loss. But if I'm forced to sell a 10-year treasury or or, you know, a 10-year Chinese bond or Japanese government bond 10, 30, 20 years because rates have gone up, I'm going to suffer a massive capital loss. So then why even own that stuff? And if nobody wants to own the long end of the government bond market, the rates will go up a lot and then the response is some form of either closing down the banking system, so making sure that depositors cannot flee to other asset classes and then forcing deposits to buy um, government bonds. Uh, This is called fiscal dominance this is a, a theory or it's called, the next thing is called yield curve control where the the central bank says, okay, we know you all want to leave this market, so we're going to fix the price at a particular level, whatever is politically expedient, whatever is affordable for the government. We're going to telegraph this, but we're going to expand our balance sheet infinitely to make sure that the rates are at that level. So in Japan… The Bank of Japan is doing this. Been doing this for almost a decade, where they say they determine a band of the yield, and they say if the if the yield gets um, to a certain level, we will go into the market and buy bonds by printing money to make sure the yields don't go up. The United States did this back in the late 40s and early 50s to pay back the the debt from World War II by capping long end treasury rates, ten year rates at two and a half percent. The Fed was expanded its balance sheet to make sure the rate is that level. So if we get a revolt from Large asset holders who say, I don't want to own these long bonds because I know mathematically there's no way for me to make money um, in a real basis. I would rather own stocks, I would rather own crypto, I'd rather own oil field, I'd rather own gold, whatever it is, then the only response is to move to the end game, which is okay, we fix the yield and we just print money until uh as long as it's is it's required to keep the yield at that level. And once you've gone to yield curve control in or something similar in in the U S, it's already in Japan. Um, something might happen similar in China and other places. Then the question is, okay, can the authorities keep the money inside their banking systems or are there ways for us, the people to get our money outside of the system so that on a real basis, we're able to maintain our energy purchasing power? And that becomes the real. Fulcrum of the crisis because if, if all the money is sitting in the banking system and they can't leave, which has been able to do prior to Bitcoin and some of these other um, blockchain based cryptocurrencies, then they just tax us all and over time uh, the government basically earns itself out of the of the situation. Yes, there's high inflation, um, depending on how your country your country is structured. Maybe it's hyperinflation, maybe it's just you know high inflation and some governments fall, some governments stay the same, but. At the end of the day, most the government can survive, but if we, the people, can get our money into a, a type of money or a type of asset that's outside of the government control, outside of the banking system, then the system collapses. Well, that
1: is a that is a very unnerving thing said very calmly, Mister Hayes. Uh, so, okay, how give me give me like the odds here? So, if if Japan has been doing yield curve control for a while. Uh, For a decade, you said, um, I've been to Japan. It's amazing. So is there really a problem? Because it sounds bad, but having experienced, if, if my time in Tokyo is what yield curve control looks like, it's not so bad. So what am I missing? Why is that something to be very wary of? So I think
0: people have mistaken the fact that we've been able to print so much money and not have an adverse effect. They're not looking at why. what has changed in the global economy over the past, um, let's call it, 20 years. And what has changed is China. China joined the WTO in 2000 and essentially became the workshop of the world. And so you've lowered the cost of goods across every single sector because of China. And they're willing to, number one, degrade their environment, to capture market share and a lot of the dirty processing to rare earths. Um, different types of commodity refining um, that the West and Japan are not willing to do. Um, they have had a growth of young people willing to go into factory work and do these things at a very cheap wage. Um, and that is it. We don't have China anymore. China, number one is dying just like everybody else. The population is like forecast to be half of what it is by the, you know, by the end of the century, China ha- the population of China has also decided that they do not want to live in a smog-filled factory, and they have told their government to prioritize um, protecting the environment. Which basically means that China does no longer want to essentially pollute itself, so that America, Western Europe, and you know, and Japan, Korea don't have to. Right? So we're going to make these things more expensive, um, and so there is no more big country that's going to join. And essentially degrade themselves so that the rest of the world, the rest of the very developed and rich world can enjoy a higher standard of living. All the while they're printing a bunch of money. So there is no more. That's just not going to happen again. And so I think that's what people miss about why we were able to print all this money over the last 20 years and not really have any sort of adverse effects. Um, That's just not going to happen anymore.
1: Well, so I'll ask maybe the uncouth question, but the obvious question. So India is still growing. Um, is there, because the, the thing that I'm dancing around is being right about the concepts, but getting the timing wrong is the same as being wrong. And so what I don't want to do is, um, get myself all worked up that, you know, the sky's falling. This is all going to be bad. Uh, I need to get my money out of the banking system. I don't want the government to close the exits. I don't want them to force me to buy things. Uh, I want to maintain my financial autonomy. I want to maintain my freedom. I want to come and go where I want. Uh, And certainly there are many, many, many horror stories throughout time of governments doing that. Um, And if there is a way to keep this party going, again, I'll just use Japan as an example. You know, my whole life I've heard Japan is in stagflation. But again, being in Japan, it's it's beautiful and lovely and there are wonderful restaurants and exceptional people and for me as a storyteller some of my favorite storytelling comes out of japan like there just doesn't seem to be and look i've never lived there but there doesn't seem to be downsides it's not like i'm like oh my god i would never want to be in japan i'm like this fucking place is amazing um so I hear your point about China, and China, the just booming growth and the amount of things that we were all able to reap the benefits of Is as the you know developed world a little bit ahead of them, uh, we were able to reap the benefits of their transition period, which is just astonishing to have been cognizant while it was happening was really something magnificent. And look, I was far removed, but still had a sense of how extraordinary their growth was. Um are we not poised to see the same thing in
0: India? So like, on the Japan thing, cause this is called the, the widow maker trait, the, Oh my God, Japan's dying. Oh my God, that's GDP. It's only goes in one direction. Oh my God. The, the BOJ's balance sheet is, is going through the roof. So Japan is essentially just like China. Japan is a more successful version of China. They both have run the exact same industrial playbook. Japan had two nuclear bombs dropped on it by the United States. Um, and the U.S. essentially made it a colony for a bit. Uh, and so what did Japan do? They reoriented, reoriented themselves to making shit for America. And essentially, the Japanese government and the large companies made essentially a pact that said, okay, we're going to give all the people jobs for life. You work really hard for the nation of Japan to make things, to to, you know, to grow the prosperity of the country. And, but you're not going to keep all of the productivity gains, right? That difference uh, is going to go essentially to these large companies and they're going to reinvest that profit back into the United States and, and Western Europe, essentially. So if you look at Japan as a country, they're one of the richest countries in the world on a um, net investment pers- um, portfolio perspective. They've got uh, $1 or $2 trillion worth of assets, What are those assets? Those are that's essentially the productivity gains of their people over you know since World War II. So Japan has this buffer of money that can cushion themselves. They owe the money to themselves. It's not as if um, the the money is owed to you know the 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 foreigners out there. You really can't buy Japanese debt in in large quantities. So yes, Japan is a unique situation where number one they they have a lot of assets um, number two, their banking system is relatively close right It's not as if Saudi Arabia can go in there and buy a billion you know a trillion dollars of Japanese bonds. They just won't let them do it right because they don't want the 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 situation that the United States is in where essentially capital holders determine the the policy of of the nation and, and Number three, Japan has been you know very fortunate to use the labor of China and Southeast Asia to reduce the cost of labor. If you look at the major Japanese trading houses and manufacturers, and if you go around Southeast Asia, you see there's a lot of Japanese companies who have factories in all these countries employing all this labor that's very cheap versus the very expensive um, labor in in Japan. Japan's a very special case. But again, all that's running out because the countries that did not benefit from the last 80 years, are like, well, why am I the... The donkey for japan to make a lot of money or the united states or western europe i want high wages i want to live in the hollywood movie i want more energy consumption i'm not going to sell my resources to these other countries um cheaply anymore and so inflation in japan is actually for the first time rising it's at i don't know four or five percent highs in, in 40 years the asahi for the first time in 30 years raised beer prices Right, so the problem is when inflation shows up, and so when you exhaust the cheap labor, when you exhaust the cheap energy, when you sell down all of your trillions of dollars of assets, and inflation remains in a world where the United States is not able to dictate the flows of energy unilaterally, then your special circumstance, you know, since the collapse of your equity market and property market since the late '80s, is no longer valid. And so I think people are making a mistake by not understanding why Japan is successful to say, oh, if Japan did it, they, they can be successful. Let's take a look at the United States. The United States owes the world something around $1 to $2 trillion. The United States runs a current account deficit and a budget deficit. Um So it's a d- completely different financial situation than Japan. The United States foreigners own a lot of the debt, the United States relies on the foreigners to buy the debt to fund itself at affordable levels. It's a completely opposite situation of Japan. So saying that Japan did it and it's okay, it can work in the United States misses the differences fundamentally between the two, um, the two situations. Now on to like, you know, don't freak out and go, you know, move all your money into gold or whatever or something and, you know, suffer some capital losses. My, you know, how I structure my portfolio is, to benefit from both situations. I have high nominal rates right now, right? I know on a real basis I'm losing money, but thankfully um, as a percentage of my uh, my net worth, the amount of money I consume on food and energy is very low. So even if I have a 5% rate and it's still a negative real gate on the amount of capital that I have, I'm still making more than I need to sustain myself. So keep some money in cash, put it in a money market fund, you're making five, 6%. I take whatever you can afford, a small amount, and put it in something that's going to benefit if money printing resumes. That could be Nvidia stock. It could be Bitcoin. It could be um, productive farmland. Whatever you want to have a barbell. You want to make sure that in the event that the the money starts getting printed, I can easily move out of my short term, you know, money market fund, government bonds into the risky stuff with a fixed supply and zoom up that way. Or if nothing happens, I'm still earning money. I'm to earning yield over here on my. My, uh, my treasuries or whatever short-term government bonds, I can fund some of my, my expenses and I, I run a positive carrier trade, meaning I've structured my portfolio such that if shit really fucks up, I'm going to make so much money in, on the, on, in that situation. But as long as not, it's very calm, I'm still covering day-to-day expenses. And so you want to have a, a, an optionality portfolio that costs you little to nothing, if not makes you money over time. If you're able to construct that, then again, timing doesn't matter because you're not paying for time. If you're selling a bunch of stuff and you've got everything in the risky bucket, yes, I would agree with you. Then you're like, well, when is it going to happen? It didn't happen last month and I'm down, I'm down such percent or I needed to buy, you know, go to the hospital because I had an emergency injury and I had to sell down some of my, this portfolio that I'm like betting on this collapse and, that was financially ruinous, right? So it's all about trying to construct this portfolio where the cost of waiting is zero to making money versus, you know, it's costing me money the longer this takes to happen.
1: Okay, so I want to go a little bit deeper um, into exactly how you structure your portfolio from, so I heard the we're going to do a barbell strategy. We want to make sure that we can move one way or the other, depending on what's going on. Um, as something starts to pop off, but you said, uh, risky stuff with a fixed supply. So hiding in that are, are what I'll call two philosophical principles, risky stuff. I'm guessing you mean high volatility. And so explaining to people why volatility is a feature and not a bug, I think may be surprising to somebody
0: and then why a fixed supply. So again, we want to make the, we want to basically participate in the upside to the maximum we can. Um, right. So we want the high volatile stuff. We want the crypto. We want the, the tech stocks, right? Um, but, on um, when stuff doesn't happen, then we want our brakes. So we're, we want like a car, right? You want to go as fast as you can in the straightaway when you are racing and you want the best brakes possible so they can take those corners and, and not get wrecked, right? So the brakes are cash, short-term cash instruments that are earning yield. That's, that's paying you your grocery bill. You're, you're filling up your car tank, whatever it is that you need to do. You want to be making sure you can cover those expenses with some cash in the bank or in a money market fund or something like that, and hire a higher yielding instrument so you can pay some of those expenses so that when shit's ready to go, Oh, I'm over here. I'm ready to make as much money as possible when they're printing money. I'm not in this safe, boring thing because this situation doesn't happen. There's not very many straightaways, right? I need to make as much money as I can when the making money is good and then put the brakes back on, right? As if you were a race car driver. That's kind of how I want to think about it. Okay. So knowing that
1: these trades are excruciatingly difficult to pull off. So for people that don't know you, you manage your own money. You've often said you find it intellectually stimulating. It's fun. Uh, I will ask the question that better be on everybody's mind. So lifetime, are you up or down? Up. Okay, good. So we know it, at least your strategy has worked once. Uh that's very valuable. So how do we make the volatility work for us because the obviously the best advice and and people laugh at this, but I think they laugh at this at their own peril because they don't understand why it's become the phrase. Buy low, sell high. Now, it got repeated so many times that it became funny because people think it's so self-evident, but in reality, it's the thing people never do. They almost always buy high and sell low. They buy high because it's hype, it's moving, they finally pay attention, they ape in, and then it starts trending down, they panic, and they sell (laughs) as it's lower than when they bought it. So um, let's assume that they're going to be uh emotionally cognizant they're going to stay calm they're not going to make that mistake but how do they know which of the risky assets to do how do they know how to do volatility well
0: um it's personal preference right like obviously i'm in the crypto sphere i love crypto i understand it um the volatility doesn't scare me for some people they might you know that that's that's too much for me maybe i'm going to stick with nasdaq tech stocks i understand i get you know i understand why this particular company could do well you know i'm going to jump on the ai tech it doesn't really matter what it is right but looking at whatever it is that you think is going to be your upside winner look at so hold on it it not only does it matter what it is
1: it's the only thing that matters because if they bet wrong they either make no money
0: or god forbid they lose a lot of money so the most important thing is not the Upside, it's the break. The break is, I own right now. The break is, I own cash in a five and a half, six percent yielding money market or wherever you are in the world, whatever that is, like the short term. That's the break. That's paying your bills. That's you know paying your rent. That's earning you a little bit uh, of income, right? Because at the end of the day, you want this portfolio to make you money while you wait. So if okay, your so to turn that
1: into. To turn it into a principle you're saying basically you're going to move into high volatility something that you have some reason to believe is going to do well but you should not be putting more into the high volatility than you can see go to absolutely zero you should have enough in the break category that even if all of that goes to zero that
0: you're still going to be able to eat and fill your tank up exactly because you're going to know when to move into i've also fed market panics Everything's getting dumped. Fed comes in overnight, says we are backstopping the financial system, and we've created some alphabet letters that essentially mean print money, right? And it could be, you know, pick your different central bank and wherever you're from. Then you know, okay, cash is trash. I was earning 6%. Overnight, now it's zero. I'm out of this. And guess what? You're not going to suffer any capital loss versus if I were in some other type of instrument, maybe it's a liquid or whatever, right? So I can get out of this thing very easily. And boom, I, maybe I had some already in my high volatility bucket, but now I'm, I'm fully in that high volatility bucket because I no longer earning anything on the cash. So there's no, why would I have anything in the other bucket? I wouldn't because I'm getting zero. I'm getting nothing. So I have to go into that because I have to find something that's going to maintain its purchasing power. What's the, when the denominator of fiat money expands infinitely. So you'll know it'll be, it's not as if like the S and P, you know, went up three times the instant that um, Ben Bernanke unveiled quantitative easing in, in March 2009. It took many, many, many years. It's not like it's – you have time. This isn't like, oh, shit, I got to go. You know, sell this, buy this, and I miss it by a day, and therefore goes my return for the next year. No, you're going to have time. Um, it'll be very clearly communicated. It's just, are you listening to what they're saying?